Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. The presumption of innocence is a hallmark of American jurisprudence. Yet, in recent years, organizations such as the Innocence Project have used DNA and other forensic evidence to champion the cause of those who potentially may have been wrongly convicted. Before the use of DNA evidence, though, best-selling author Earl Stanley Gardner tried to highlight and reverse miscarriages of justice through his most famous character, Perry Mason, and by establishing the Court of Last Resort a project working on behalf of defendants who had suffered from poor legal representation, misinterpretation of evidence, or the malicious actions of police and prosecutors. Our guest today is Ian Burney, professor of the history of science, technology, and medicine at the University of Manchester. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Ian is working on a new book which explores the methods Gardner and his colleagues used to establish the innocence of those wrongly convicted in the mid-20th century, setting precedents for how we think about establishing innocence in our current moment. Welcome, Ian. Thank you, Robert. So talk to us a bit about what the Innocence Project is and was and what has been lacking in terms of serious historical reflection on it that your book hopes to rectify. So I came to this project really sort of thinking about our contemporary moment of innocence, which is not only something that is actively engaged in the courtroom, but also in broader kind of popular culture, media culture. I was really interested in how it is that this kind of particular culture of innocence, as it were, came into being, what its drivers are, and how it is that um, the culture of contemporary innocence sort of understands itself. And one of the ways in which you can figure out how a movement understands itself is how it is that it differentiates itself from what it is that it thinks happened before. And so in the contemporary innocence uh, language, the the language of kind of the innocence movement today, uh, there is a recognition that this is not the first generation to consider questions of wrongful conviction and whether people are unjustly, have been unjustly incarcerated, but that they draw a categorical distinction between what it is that they are able to do and why it is that this innocence moment is so compelling and so powerful. And the answer that they tend to give is that we now have DNA, right? So that it's a it's a story about the contemporary innocence moment that is that its exceptionalism is predicated upon its access to a new and unassailable forensic technology. So that's the, as an historian of science and medicine, I mean that for me is is a bit of a red rag to a bull, right? Historians of science and medicine seek to understand claims to scientific kind of objectivity and unassailability through a kind of consideration of context. So that was the intention at the beginning, to think about um, how it is that a different um, historical framework of innocence thought about itself, what were its questions, what were its methodologies, not to say that this is simply a replica of what it is that happened before, but to use history to think about what is and what is not particular about our own time. So what brings Earl Stanley Gardner, the creator of uh, Perry Mason, 
in the 1940s to the court of last resort. I mean, obviously, we can make the connection from his interest in Perry Mason himself. Sure, absolutely. But what were his personal passions that caused this interest to arise? His personal passions were deep, extensive, and as I'm finding out, rather odd. The simplest connection is his experience as a lawyer and as a defense lawyer. And at least according to the way that he explains himself and narrates his own kind of biography and how he came to this epiphany, he was like Perry Mason. He was interested in cases of the underdog, the ones who were not getting good representation. And so that's what he did for maybe a decade in the 1920s in Oxnard, California. So the first move is that he is not only a champion of justice, but he is he is a lover of all things outdoor, Western. He's a, he's a complicated guy. He's a hunter that doesn't like to kill. You know, he's an outdoorsman who enjoys uh, the roughness of the kind of the untamed frontier. So what he does is he, he starts to write, and he writes in order that he can escape his role as a lawyer and to actually then perform his role as a frontiersman. He buys up land in the Southern California, and he builds this ranch, which is known as the Fiction Factory. He has a bevy of, of secretaries, six secretaries, and a a dictaphone, and he just sits in his ranch with his cowboy hat on, dictating at furious and remarkable pace. So he, he writes these stories, and he, he sees his writing as a way of liberating himself from the practical mundane nature of the law. But then I guess, I mean, and this is something that he hasn't really sort of explicitly told me, but there is the sense in which his, um, his interest in the real cause of the underdog, of the victim of a justice system, which he fundamentally believes in, he is not a critic of the American system of justice. I'm quite the opposite. Like his love of the frontier, he's a patriot, but he sees that mistakes can happen. And this is where he comes into his own and decides to found with one of the leading New York publishers of popular magazines, Harry Steger, comes to found the Court of Last Resort. One of his major publicity outlets, however, is Argosy, a pulp magazine. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the readership, is, as I understand it, for Argosy is primarily would-be rugged masculine personality, pretty much exclusively white, the kind of would-be frontiersman. Yeah. So why Argosy? The Argosy magazine is one of the early magazines that is devoted explicitly to a men's audience. For my purposes, you know, you have Esquire in the 1930s, which is basically kind of teaching men that they have their own interests and that they can actually care about those interests. And Argosy is an interesting blend of a magazine that has been, to some extent, an adventure magazine. But what Harry Steger, the publisher of Argosy, is trying to do is to combine the sense of masculine adventure with the sense of masculine responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the way that Gardner understands the, um, the cause that he is, is espousing, it's a call on virile 
rugged American masculinity to rise up, get involved, get interested in things that they don't necessarily think that they're going to be interested in, which is the administration of justice, but fundamentally in terms of storyline, you know, justice, guilt and innocence for Gardner is the primary narrative that everybody is interested in. But he just needs to be able to get American men, Argosy men, to be engaged with this ennobling cause, and that will simultaneously ennoble them and protect the nation. And the court of last resort is the vehicle for making Argosy's appeal to the imagination and the adventurous spirit of the trapped American man something that is noble as well, rather than just commercial. There is a kind of presumption with the court of last resort that justice flows from the people. However, there's also in the court of last resort a kind of conservative take on racial issues around lynching, uh, a kind of reluctance to upset the white supremacist order in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of troubling. My take on Gardner and the court of last resort and the Argosy magazine is that it's a highly pragmatic model of idealism. So you take, as you say, fundamentally, you, you say the model of the court of last resort and its model of justice flows from the people. It has chosen who its people are by dint of choosing its outlet for publicity, right? So you already have this subset of a million to a million and a half readers with a presumed demographic and a presumed set of interests, right? So one of the things that in selecting their cases for pursuit and for publicity, Gardner and his court are thinking about the degree to which this will interest and excite the readers, because ultimately there's a tension between the importance of the individual as a case as a person who has potentially been wronged to the question of like what that person represents and how it is that pursuing and understanding how that person came to the situation that he was in, what that says about something more structural, more broad. I mean, the first case that they do, and I've just finished a big piece on this, is an old desert prospector who did a homestead, and he was basically being railroaded, run out of town by a bunch of kind of corrupt cattle barons and the sheriff who was in the pay of the, of the cattle barons. And it ends up in a shootout in which the prospector shoots his assailant and is sent to prison for it. So basically, you know, as I tell you this, Robert, and you say, well, I, I've seen this movie before, right? I've seen that. And basically, that is the point. Everybody has seen this movie before. And so the choice of this person to debut the Court of Last Resort's work is very much about how it is that the readership, what their kind of imaginative register is, what they're going to be able to kind of grasp onto. And certainly, Gardner's love of the West and love of the frontier, which is part and parcel of what the Argosy is selling to its readers. So you can see how it is that the Court of Last Resort is actually being knitted into a much broader kind of cultural framework that shifts magazines and that gets people impassioned. And then there are more difficult cases. The question that you're raising about the question of race and lynching is a very interesting one. It's not that the court of last resort only deals with white men. 
there's a couple of very interesting Native American cases that they pursue. And there are also, I think, three cases that involve African-American men, one of which is a case in which so the Court of Last Resort's forensic technology that is the equivalent of DNA is the polygraph. Gardner, kind of like the Innocence Project today, is sort of seeing the potential of using the polygraph as a tool of liberation rather than of conviction. The interesting thing about the polygraph is that it is a, um, it's a shell game, right? And Gardner knows that as well. It's more about how it is that the person that's hooked up to the polygraph is prepared to give the polygraph credit and give the polygraph examiner credit. The machinery is irrelevant. It's the human relationship that matters. Gardner and his associates are pushing for the polygraph in order to be able to use it as a lever of, of liberation, turns out that the guy fails the polygraph test. The man is executed. The next African-American case is that it's not so much an interesting case, but the response, or at least the alleged response of the readers, is really interesting. It's a, an African-American ex-serviceman who is, was convicted in Virginia of killing a police officer. His case is taken up by James J. Kilpatrick, the young James J. Kilpatrick, who listeners of a certain age will maybe remember as, in his later years, was a firebrand kind of conservative commentator. When he was a cub reporter in Richmond, Virginia in the 1950s, he was an arch segregationist. And yet, writing for the Richmond newspaper is the one that champions this guy's case. The way to understand that is to understand how it is that American injustice to its African-American citizens in the post-war period is being understood internationally in the context of an emergent Cold War polarization, right, in which the Americans' ability to position themselves as the representatives of global liberty is being threatened by international condemnation of lynching and manifest racial injustice that is taking place. And so somebody like James J. Kilpatrick can see taking on this guy's case as a way of demonstrating locally but also internationally that actually we take care of our own. So part of what your project is doing is kind of troubling any oversimplified notions of that science has a linear progression. Sure. Can you talk to us about the implications of Gardner's work for forensic science today vis-a-vis that troubling? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a number of um, different ways to approach that. Here's an example. I mean, it's something that I was talking about earlier. It's the political neutrality or, shall I say, political flexibility of a piece of kind of forensic or scientific technology, right? From Gardner's point of view, the central apparatus of truth-telling was the polygraph, in the 1940s, 1950s, the dominant framework for uh, the use of the polygraph was inquisitorial and threatening, basically. You know, if you don't have anything to hide, why don't you submit to a polygraph? One of the things that happens as we move into the 1960s is that, more broadly, it's about employment. Uh, have you been stealing from the firm? Or, you know, are you going to be a trustworthy employee every year? You have to come and, or are you a communist? This sort of thing. And 
in the 1960s, there's a strong organized movement sort of spearheaded by the labor unions to get each state to adopt laws which ban employers from using the polygraph for employment purposes. And so all of a sudden, you know, the polygraph industry has a problem because their bread and butter is about to disappear. People called Earl, Stanley Gardner, Uncle Earl. So they turn to Uncle Earl and say, help us, what can we do? And, and he starts to write books, Perry Mason books, in which the polygraph features as this kind of liberal tool of freedom, of liberation. He's helping them to manage the PR of their technology. Okay, so how is that related to DNA? So right now, in the hands of organizations like the Innocence Project, the use of DNA testing as a core feature of a strategy of liberation is that DNA is on the side of the angels. On the other hand, I mean, you use DNA as a guilty project rather than as an innocence project. In other words, we have an interminable appeal system once somebody is, has been convicted. Let's cut through all that. And, and the appeals are based upon whether procedure has been followed or whether there are any kind of structural, contextual issues that need to be rethought. No, let's just go straight for the test and cut away all of the context, all of the process, all of the procedure, which everybody who's thinking that way, it's a waste of time. So let's just cut to the chase. Let's use DNA to establish guilt. So I guess what I'm saying is that when one fetishizes a technology, that fetishization serves the function of separating it out from its kind of contingent circumstances. And it makes one forget the different types of contingencies and the different kinds of uses that any particular technology, which is in and of itself neutral, that it can be used for. One final question. Tell us a bit about what drove you to this project. What about the contingencies and deep inner complexities of Ian Burney <laughs> uh, drive you to Earl Stanley Gardner and this particular project? I've spent most of my kind of scholarly career being interested in questions about how it is that claims to expert knowledge are proposed, how it is that they're presented, represented, and then contested, and what the different kinds of political and cultural uses um, and strategies experts use to deliver their thing. I took a line in which I first did this in the context of medical legal questions about cause of death. So I wrote a book about the coroner's inquest system in the 19th and early 20th century in England. And there the question was how, what the relationship was between almost a sort of a political understanding of what death inquiry meant to a public. Coroners had juries in England up until the early part of the 20th century. So the question is, so what is a juror supposed to know? And how does medical mediation, how does that affect what it is that they're supposed to understand and what the function of the inquest is? I wrote a book on poisoning, uh, which did, a, I guess, a sort of a similar thing about the rise of toxicology and how it is that toxicology purports to answer a certain kind of question, which is much more than a, a simple question of criminal law, but it's about an understanding of a particular malaise in Victorian Britain, which you can see in all sorts of ways through newspapers, but also in the literary canon. Uh, and then the last book that I wrote before taking on this was a book about the invention of crime scene investigation and how it is that in the context of the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, you turn where a crime happened the scene of a crime into a crime scene with a capital C and a capital S and all the kinds of 
gestures and disciplines and procedures that are mapped out in order to be able to create the crime scene as a substantive entity that can be used for particular purposes and that can be guaranteed to yield useful clues. All the work that I've done thus far has been in the English context. I got interested in an American case, the Sam Shepard murder case, which took place in the 1950s in Cleveland, Ohio. It involved a very kind of innovative approach to blood spatter evidence. And so I was in, because I'd just done the crime scene stuff, I was interested in just thinking about a particular technique which utilizes the crime scene, but actually then reads it in a particular way. The Shepard case, very briefly, there are three trials. There's one in the 1950s, there's one in the 1960s, and there's one in 2000. And he's guilty in the 1950s, he's innocent in the 1960s, and he's, well, we don't really know, because that was a case of wrongful conviction, a civil case brought by his son against the state of Ohio for wrongful imprisonment. And there he failed. So that's not to say that Shepard was guilty again, but the, the state was not wrong in convicting him. So what was really interesting there to me was that you have the same facts, as it were, the same case with three different outcomes, yeah? And so I thought that that would be a really nice book project to think about the contingencies of expert and forensic practice by trying to figure out what's different about the configuration or the arrangement of science and law and politics and culture in the 50s, in the 60s and 2000. What I found was that a very interesting intermediary between Shepherd of 1955 and Shepherd of 1966 was Earl Stanley Gardner and the Court of Last Resort because the Shepherd case was basically the case, it was the last kind of round of fireworks of the Court of Last Resort. It was so prominent, so incandescent, so powerful that ultimately it consumed the Court of Last Resort. Thank you, Ian Burney, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.